This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Slate Magazine, The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Onion News Network, Media Matters, and The Progressive with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report. Today's story is called Election Hangover, The Real Legacy of Bush v. Gore, and it's written by Richard L. Hassan. What's the central legacy of Bush v. Gore? Republicans see the Supreme Court stopping a lawless recount, while Democrats see a lawless court stopping a legitimate recount. Ten years later, commentators like Jeffrey Tubin protest that Bush v. Gore brought dishonor on the court but the Supreme Court's public legitimacy has not suffered. The real lesson of the Florida fiasco, not merely Bush v. Gore, is about something else, the undermining of the public's faith in the fairness of American elections. This has triggered an ongoing war over their administration. A straight line runs from Bush v. Gore through a series of election controversies in the past decade. We can walk it from the 2003 California gubernatorial recall circus with its 21 lawsuits to the armies of lawyers dispatched to battleground states in the elections of 2004 to the controversies over voter identification laws. Next, bogus organizations made unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud. When the Department of Justice investigated, they found virtually none. Still, in 2008, John McCain ranted that the group ACORN was maybe perpetrating one of the greatest frauds in voter history. That election also featured the interminable Coleman-Franken election recount. This time around, disputes about how to spell Lisa Murkowski on write-in ballots are playing out in Alaska's recount of its Senate race. The common thread is hyperpartisan controversy. Before 2000, candidates and the public were both quick to accept official election results, even in close elections. Bush v. Gore taught political operatives, and everyone else, that there are significant problems in how we administer our elections, and that when contests are close enough to be within the margin of litigation, it makes sense to fight on rather than to concede. The battle in the courts and the press can focus on whatever legal tool is at hand. A suit over treatment of overseas ballots, polling place errors, mismatched signatures between registration cards and absentee ballots, votes for the lizard people, or allegations of fraud. Since Bush v. Gore, the number of lawsuits brought over election issues has more than doubled. Litigation and the threat of it have come to serve another purpose as well mobilizing the base before elections. Republicans generally charge that the election system is rife with fraud, often committed by poor and minority voters to give Democrats the advantage. Thus, former Republican House Majority Leader and current Tea Party enthusiast Dick Armey said before the November election, with no evidence whatsoever, that 3% of votes would be cast fraudulently for Democrats. He added, I'm tired of people being Republican all their lives and then changing parties when they die. Democrats, on the other hand, make political hay by arguing that Republicans have taken steps to suppress the votes of poor and minority voters. When a Republican group, Latinos for Reform, ran ads in Nevada urging Latinos not to vote, it was hard to imagine the ads actually working, but protesting them was a great tool for Democrats trying to boost Latino turnout. All of this has shaken public confidence in the fairness of the electoral process. Before 2000, most people were confident their votes were going to be counted accurately. After 2000, they're much less so. The pattern of public opinion data also shows that losers tend to view a particular election as less fair than winners do. The worry and complaining about election administration has been magnified by the Internet. When Bush v. Gore was decided, there were no blogs to dissect every ballot and court opinion. Now, claims of scheming and manipulation ricochet from blogs to Facebook to Twitter, breeding more suspicion. If we wanted to, we could put an end to all this fighting. We could start with a uniform national ballot and uniform rules for the casting and counting of votes in federal elections. We could nationalize voter registration, or at least mandate modernization so that state voter registration databases talk to each other. 
We could remove partisan officials from making election decisions in which they have a vested interest. Like Ken Blackwell, who served as co-chair of Bush's 2004 Ohio Re-Election Committee, while making a series of election law decisions as Ohio Secretary of State that seemed designed to favor Republicans. But the political will doesn't exist to bring about such changes. Bush v. Gore happened just as the country moved into a period of intense mistrust between Democrats and Republicans. Its legacy probably can't be reversed until those feelings subside. Let's hope that another razor-thin presidential election doesn't happen in the meantime. Senator Hatch is speaking in front of the university crowd in Utah. They're uh, young and generally Tea Partiers. He wants to appeal to them because he's about to get primaried by the Tea Party. Even Mike Lee, his fellow senator from Utah now, who, uh, of course, uh, upset his colleague Bob Bennett and took over his spot and is a Tea Partier, said, I'm not supporting Hatch in 2012. It's pretty harsh to do for fellow senators from the same state. Hatch is so nervous because Bennett got taken down in Utah. And so, and he is the biggest establishment Republican in the country. Now he's trying to pretend to be populist and hip. So here's what he says to the crowd. Quote, every state has different demographics. Every state has a different problems. It's good to allow them to work out their own problems rather than a one-size-fits-all federal government dumbass program. It really is an awful piece of crap. Okay, that's awesome. Look, first of all, Hatch hasn't cursed in like 30 years. Okay, I don't know if he curses in private or if he doesn't, but he's, he's a very stiff guy. He's not the kind of guy that goes around dropping F-bombs like Dick Cheney, okay, or Rahm Emanuel. So for him to throw out those curses, he didn't slip up. He's doing it on purpose. He's doing it to be like, oh, look at how angry I am. I am so passionate like you tea partiers. What a piece of crap that is. I hate Obama. <laughs> Come on, man. Get. Get. <laughs> and then dumbass program? Somebody had to teach him that like a week ago. He never even heard of dumbass before he said that. But he's speaking to kids, so he wants to speak their language. So transparent. So, 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 so transparent. <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, he later said, uh, you know, I shouldn't have used foul language. I'm going to repent. I don't know if that means he wears tighter Mormon underwear. I don't know. I don't know how I would fence. I probably don't want to know. <laughs> but come on, Orin. Please. Do this next time, a little less transparent, okay? Oh, for the sake of momentum, I've allowed my fears to get larger than life. And it's brought me to my current agenda. Where a planet in that fulfillment has yet to arrive. And I know life is I am so excited about next year's presidential election that I am beside myself, which will come in handy because I'm planning to vote twice. <laughs> this is my favorite part of the election cycle, with so many potential GOP candidates flirting with running for office. It's like waiting for somebody to ask you to the prom so you're not stuck going with that creepy guy. <laughs> now, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, for unattached voters like me, the Republican field has so many caucus teases. <laughs> they're all, they're all profiled in the latest issue of Elephant Beat. <laughs> all the hot front runners. Great articles. Romney lovers were having a midlife crisis. <laughs> and they're all playing so hard to get. Like former Speaker of the House and snowman brought to life, Newt Gingrich. <laughs> 
you more than anybody right now are heading to, let's see, New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina. So you are well, thinking, you can come clean now, you are thinking about maybe running. Well, I'm thinking about being helpful to the citizens who are concerned. I'm going to move on because I know I'm not going to get the answer and you've got that smile on your face and it just, it, it, it melts my ability to grill you on it. Oh. oh, Newt, you are such a bad boy. And Hannity, you are such a bad journalist. And what about... And what about tonight's guest, Mike Huckabee? Dreamboat. And he's got his hand under the shirt, over the bra of Republican primary voters. But will he go all the way? Could you beat President Obama if you were the Republican nominee in 2012? I certainly wouldn't take a shot at it if I didn't think I had a chance to take it all the way to the finish line. All right. So that's not... Okay, now let me read a little bit behind that. So that's not a no, right? That's well, not I'm a not no. That, it out. Yeah, I mean, you know... Okay, you haven't ruled it out. I'm not what ready would it take? to What does it take? I'm not jumping into a, a, a pool that doesn't have water in it. Are you sure? You'd get a lot of YouTube hits. Of course, some people are obviously running, like New Jersey governor and plus-size head model, Chris Christie. Jim? I've said I don't want to, I'm not going to, there's zero chance I will, I don't feel like I'm ready to be president, I don't want to run for president, I don't have the fire in the belly to run for president, but yet everybody still thinks, well, he's left the door open a little bit. And I don't, you know, short of suicide, I don't really know what I'd have to do to convince you people that I'm not running. I'm not running. Not enough. You can commit suicide and still run. I'm pretty sure John Kerry was in rigor mortis. Well, well, with this in mind, Nation, I have a very important announcement to make. I have given this a lot of thought, ladies and gentlemen. I have spoken with my family, and tonight I am officially declaring that I am not running for president. Thank you. Because I do not have a vision to move this country forward. I am not prepared to face our problems. And most of all, I do not feel your pain. In fact, f your pain. Stephen Colbert, not in 2012. Jimmy, raise the balloons. I have made it clear that I am not running. Or am I? Someone like you and all you know and how you speak. Countless lovers under cover of the street. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Herman Cain is a guy who uh, was at one point one of the owners of Godfather's Pizza. He now does a talk show. He's got a lot of hype on the conservative side. Um, he did pretty well in one of the uh, crazy Tea Party polls. And, uh, and you know, everybody's excited about him because he's a real conservative. He doesn't compromise. Well, yeah, I guess that's somewhat true. Uh, he was doing an interview with Christianity Today. Uh, they'd asked him about, hey, you remember one time you were getting, uh, you had a doctor by the uh, name of Abdallah, and that that concerned you? Um, and 
you know, how did you allay that concern? You know, they're referring to an old story, and in that old story, he said that he was relieved when he, once he found out that he was a Lebanese Christian, of course. Because if he was a Lebanese Muslim, well, then obviously he can't be a good doctor. By the way, uh, perhaps the most famous doctor in the country right now, Dr. Oz, is Turkish. I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying. But of course, Herman Cain wouldn't want him uh, operating on him. Uh, by the way, Dr. Oz uh, operated on my uncle and did a great job, and he's alive today, thanks to Dr. Oz. But of course, if he was a Christian, I'm sure it would have come out much better. Anyway, uh, when uh, asked about Muslims in America, he got a little bit more specific. He says, first of all, look, I, I will allow them to practice their religion freely. Oh, well, are you not merciful? Well, thank you very much. But he adds, quote, the role of Muslims in America is not to convert the rest of us to the Muslim religion. That I resent. And so I push back and reject them trying to convert the rest of us. And based upon the little knowledge that I have of the Muslim religion, you know, they have an objective to convert all infidels or kill them. Well, one part of that quote is accurate. You have very little knowledge of the Muslim faith. Look, it's amazing because he must not know any Muslims. I mean, obviously he doesn't. He got freaked out by the name Abdallah, of his doctor. And I, since I grew up in a Muslim family, I happen to know a lot of Muslims. And first of all, none of them give a damn about converting Herman Cain, let alone killing him. I have, look, are there Muslims in the world that want to either convert or kill people? Yes. Are there Christians in the world who feel the same way? Yes, right? Now, you can argue that in the Middle East there are more Muslims in that category. Okay. But if you think that's all Muslims, you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. The Muslims here in America have no interest in killing you or or most of them in converting you. You know who wants to convert you? Christians! They do it all the time. They send missionaries all over the world. And if you've ever been to get hoodwinked by a pretty girl into a Bible study class and then got thumped over the head with a Bible, you know about people trying to convert you. You know that's the oldest trick in the book in college. So, oh, we have this great thing. You want to get together for like dinner or something? And the guy's like, oh, Satan, what's going on? Is God jinx inviting me to dinner or something? And then you come in and they're like, oh, Satan with a Bible. You're like, oh, what happened? Turns out they're Bible thumpers trying to convert you. Now, luckily, they're not going to kill you or anything. <laughs> but I'm not like Herman Cain, who believes idiotically that the entire religion is uh, based on that, right? So, look, if a guy like this got into power, which he luckily won't, how scary would that be? What, what an incredibly perverted way of thinking of a, about a religion with over a billion people in the world. All right. By the way, to give you a sense of how perverted uh, uh, you know Herman Cain's way of thinking is on a lot of issues, uh, Matt Lewis interviewed him for um, the Daily Caller, and when he asked him about an old anecdote about his uh, mother warning him not to drink from uh, the water fountains reserved for whites back in the days of segregation. They, she said, make sure you drink from the uh, water fountain for African Americans. He said, quote, we looked at each other and said, the water tastes the same. What's the big deal? Oh, come on, Herman. Jesus, Lord mercy. Now, Matt Lewis comes in and says, no, 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 it's just that Cain wanted to express the absurdity of segregation. That's not what that quote says. That quote clearly says, Oh, what's the big deal? We don't get to drink from the white fountain. We're fine. We know our place. It's, gee, I wonder why the conservatives like him. Huh? I don't know. I'm going to have to put some thought behind that. Going ever closer to the lightly shaded edge of a very fine line, Republican Newt Gingrich made an announcement today about the 2012 presidential campaign. Mr. Gingrich did not announce that he is forming a formal presidential exploratory committee or uh, becoming an actual candidate, because in that case he'd have to make a public accounting of all the money he's raising and what he's doing with that money, and that just won't do. Now, instead, Mr. Gingrich announced that he is launching a sort of exploratory effort, exploratory phase, or maybe it's just a website. 
uh, behold newtexplorer2012.com, where you can see a very diverse crowd of very excited Americans looking up in great wonder, presumably at Mr. Gingrich, presumably as Mr. Gingrich makes this wonderful announcement of exploration or whatever it is. But if you thought to yourself, hey, I'm, am I getting jaded? It feels like I've seen this all before. It may just be because you've seen this all before. Here's that same very diverse crowd of very excited Americans looking up in great wonder at an eagle. And here's that same very diverse crowd of very excited Americans looking up in great wonder at the About Us tab on a Washington state political website. Here's that same very diverse crowd of very excited Americans uh, not just looking up, but looking even further up, way up. They moved the camera, see? Uh, here's the same group pledging allegiance. And here's the same group now talking on their cell phones. Here they are looking vaguely angry, like maybe they think Mr. Gingrich is just toying with them, or maybe they've got a cause that they're mad about. But if they do, it's a cause you can fill in yourself. You just put the words right there on the sign. It's easy. Despite appearances, these are not actual diverse, excited, flag-waving, upward-glancing Americans psyched to explore Newt. If you want these models to look excited at you too, or at your donate now button, then you can buy them. They're fake. But the donate button, now that is very, very real. Perfecting the art of faking politics for fame and profit with the very accomplished scam artist known as Newt Gingrich. That's next. December 7th, uh, to most Americans, is the day that will live in infamy, right? It's the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. It is a somber day among American historical commemorations. Uh, Pearl Harbor Day this year was commemorated by Newt Gingrich as follows. He tweeted this. The 69th anniversary of the Japanese attack is a good time to remind folks of our novels, Pearl Harbor and Days of Infamy, Newt. By our novels, Mr. Gingrich means novels that he co-wrote that he wants you to buy. It's a good time to remind... Uh, Mr. Gingrich later deleted that tweet without comment and without apology. On Veterans Day this year, if you were lucky enough to be on one of Mr. Gingrich's spam scam email lists, he sent out an email on November 11th under the subject line, Happy Veterans Day. If you clicked on that, you would find out that Mr. Gingrich was using Veterans Day to promote another one of his novels, which might make a lovely gift. Celebrate veterans, pay newt. Then Christmas this year was an occasion for him announcing 12 days of Gingrich gifts. Actually, I should be specific here. Uh, it was specifically an occasion for the Gingrich Productions 12 days of Xmas presents. Newt Gingrich is amazing. This was the scam fax he was sending out just before the election last year. You can tell it's a scam by a few different things here. Number one, uh, they use a font that is designed to look like handwriting to make it look like it's a personal handwritten fax. Uh, but it's not handwritten. It is mass produced. That is a font. That's one way you can tell it's a scam. The other way you can tell it's a scam is because it says uh, right up here at the top, Newt Gingrich. This is one of Newt's spam specialties. He gives out fake awards. This one in particular was sent to the mother of a reporter at the Huffington Post. It purports to be a casual note directly from Newt to one of his staffers sort of leaking the inside but happy information that Sam Stein's mother had, quote, made the cut as one of Newt's, quote, 2010 champions of medicine. Newt was giving her an award. He had selected her. She had made the cut. He even faxed out a picture of what the physical award would look like. This would look great in your office, says the handwriting font. It doesn't say so in the blast facts, but if you called for more information about how to accept the award, you would find out that in order to get the award, you would have to send Newt Gingrich $5,000. <laughs> this kind of scam has made Newt Gingrich a rich man since he left the House of Representatives under a cloud of fundraising ethics charges. The best monitor graphic in the history of The Rachel Maddow Show. It blinks. Live Newt girls. Uh, the best one we ever did is because of another uh, Newt Gingrich scam, the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. This one also came with the catch of having to pay $5,000 in, in order to collect it. The reason this one came to light is because one of the people he blast faxed this scam award letter to was the very nice and very friendly owner of a Dallas strip club called The Lodge. Apparently, Newt Gingrich had not noticed in the very careful process of selecting his award-winning Entrepreneurs of the Year, a process so careful, so scrupulous, that the next year, even after all the publicity for his accidental award to a strip club that he rescinded, Newt Gingrich hit the lodge owner up again the following year for another two grand. 
The owner of the lodge never got that scam entrepreneur award. But Newt did send her a lovely souvenir gavel, which she then gave to us at the Rachel Maddow Show, which was very nice. What Newt Gingrich is exploiting is the idea that he is a serious political figure. And in order to make money off of the idea that he's a serious political figure, he has to seem to be a serious political figure. And in order to seem to be a serious political figure, Mr. Gingrich has to flirt with becoming the most serious political figure in the land. But he can't actually commit to doing that because that would impede his ability to get rich off of the appearance that he is a serious political figure. It is a beautiful scam. And that's why you have been hearing that Newt Gingrich might be running for president for the last 10 years. That's why just this week we were treated to promises from Newt Gingrich's senior advisors that he'd be announcing an exploratory committee for president, right? But then when Mr. Gingrich stood up today to make his big announcement, he did not announce that he was forming an exploratory committee for president. He announced that he was forming a website. He was entering an exploratory phase, having exploratory feelings. Yes, it's as gross as it sounds. Why not just announce a candidacy? Because that would definitely invoke federal election rules about how you raise and spend money. Mr. Gingrich cannot afford those kind of rules. Newt Gingrich's main money-making vehicle is called American Solutions. He's got lots of these things, but the main one is American Solutions. And when people who don't read the news very deeply talk about the potential Republican 2012 political field, they look at how much money American Solutions raises and say things like, wow, Newt Gingrich is quite a fundraiser. He has got to be gearing up for a run. Look at how much money American Solutions has been raising. And it's true. In 2010, he outraised everybody else in the Republican field. He raised $14.5 million through American Solutions. $14.5 million. That is way out ahead of everybody. Ahead of Romney, Palin, Haley Barber, everybody. He raised $14.5 million in 2010. He's sitting on that much money coming into 2011? No. Uh, he did actually raise $14.5 million, and then he spent... 13.8 million of it. Ta-da! What did he spend that money on? Well, a lot of it was travel. Reportedly $2 million on private planes and chauffeur services. And then there are the administrative costs. What are those administrative costs? Who's administering the Gingrich empire and spending all of this money? One of the vendors is something called the Gingrich Group, which is run by a man named... Newt Gingrich. So Newt Gingrich is being paid to administer the Newt Gingrich fundraising empire, which raises a lot of money, but spends almost all the money that it raises on what appears to be Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich's second ex-wife told Esquire magazine last year that Mr. Gingrich was not really running for president. He was trying to look like he was running, to, running for president in order to make more money. Time will tell if she was right about that but it does not seem unlikely. Now more than ever, America needs Newt Gingrich. But as much as America needs Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich needs your money. Remember, the first principle of a free market economy? You get what you pay for. America, do you really want Newt Gingrich? Then you need to pay Newt Gingrich. America's solution for winning the future can't possibly decide whether to devote himself to your future prosperity until he sees some prosperity right now. That means money, PayPal, traveler's checks, unmarked 20s, getting paid. The question isn't, should America have Newt Gingrich? But rather, does America deserve Newt Gingrich? The only way to find out is to give generously to Newt and Callista Gingrich. They will decide what to do with your donation. And if that's not enough, then clearly there's something wrong with you, liberal. Newt Gingrich 2012. Maybe. How bad do you want it? You'll know you found the right website that Mr. Gingrich launched today when you see the big Donate Now button. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I
Nation, 2012 is right around the corner, and everybody is searching for a fresh Republican face to take on President Obama, like Newt Gingrich. <laughs> Not that fresh, but a lot of face. <laughs> Newt knows that before he can throw his giant hat into the ring, he has to explain his past positions. Specifically, why those positions were so often on top of women who weren't his wife. <laughs> recently, recently, Newt did just that on CBN, Heaven's News Leader. Jim? There's no question that at times in my life, uh, partially driven by, by how passionately I felt about this country, uh, that I worked far too hard, and that things happened in my life that were not appropriate. Yes. Newt only cheated on his wives because he's so passionate about America. <laughs> Patriotism takes many forms. Some people join the army, some people wear a flag pin, and some people cheat on their wife while she's in the hospital with cancer. <laughs> you know, I never realized just how patriotic John Edwards is. <laughs> and who really, folks, who can blame these guys for getting a little randy? Just looking at America's Purple Mountain's majesty can make my rocket red glare. <laughs> so, with this patriotic defense of his inappropriate behavior, Newt's just saying that all he ever really wanted to do was screw America. <laughs> and if we elect him president, he will keep that promise. If you're loved by someone you're never rejected, decide what to be and go be it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There's a darkness upon you that's flooded in life. This is the Onion News Network, keeping you safe from the lies. Let's turn to some political news. A new poll shows Sarah Palin's presidential prospects are being bolstered by the public's morbid curiosity about a Palin White House. In an Onion News Network survey, 62% of Americans said that even though they don't support Sarah Palin's politics, they would consider voting for her out of a perverse desire to see what would happen if she were the president. Joining us now is Onion News Network political analyst Jason Copeland. So, Jason, are Americans really sickly fascinated enough to propel Sarah Palin into the White House? Well, it's, it's looking possible right now, Brooke. In mm -hmm. one sampling, 2,000 lifelong Democrats were asked, what's the worst that could happen if Sarah Palin were elected president? Don't you kind of want to find out? And more than 80% of them responded, God, I'm so sorry, but yes. Oh, yeah, they can't help themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, respondents said they also simply needed to know who Palin would put into the Supreme Court. And top guesses there included uh, Fox News personality Greta Van Susteren, mm -hmm. Cowboy actor Sam Elliott and uh, Wasilla Alaska auto mechanic Gary, uh, no last name. Well, Oprah Winfrey actually got the bug as well. Last week on her show, she endorsed Palin yeah. and then changed her mind saying it wasn't worth the cost, yeah. but then changed it back again yeah. saying, eh, you only live once. Yeah, that was some interesting yeah. television. She right. was so exhilarated by that. Of course, the Republican mm -hmm. leaders have already begun to generate campaign materials for the speculative Palin 2012 run. Mm -hmm. And uh, just today, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky made a statement. He said, uh, having Palin in office would be like a four-year-long whitewater rafting trip. It might mm -hmm. kill us, but if it doesn't, we'll end up with a lot of crazy-ass photos. So. Any response from the uh, Palin team on all uh, this? Yes, actually. Yeah. Uh, just today, uh, the Onion News Network approached her camp and asked her uh, about her plans for office. And they didn't give us a statement, but they did give us a uh, choose-your-own-adventure book that they've created. Uh, hmm. You can see in there that uh, she could annex Mexico, uh, change the drinking age to 14, and yeah. create a federal mandate for mm -hmm. all Americans to learn to skin animals. It's a pretty yeah. fun read. Well, I've never personally been a fan of other powerful women, but I'll be watching. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, bro. Reminds me of when Lindsey Graham was elected just because everyone in South Carolina thought it would be hilarious. Leather skin, and lately's what I've been thinking about.
Sarah Palin is getting savaged from all sides. And I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about the right wing. There's an article in Politico that is devastating. It has been, you know, Politico is, you know, a vat of conventional wisdom and Washington groupthink, etc. And they run these articles when there are a lot of people leaking stuff to them, trying to take her down. Now, look, there's a lot of people who are going to run against her, possibly in the Republican primaries. So they have good motivation to leak stuff to Politico. Uh, but if this is coming out and it's painted this way, that means she's in some serious trouble on the Republican side. Uh, they quote uh, George Will, Peter Werner, who's a top strategist for the Bush White House, he was. Uh, Heather McDonald, the leading voice in the right-leaning Manhattan Institute, as Politico explains. And Matt Labosh, a uh, longtime writer for the Weekly Standard. They all put different daggers in her back, uh, all with different devastating quotes about how she's unqualified, uh, lacks uh, the intellectual capacity to be president, is leading the Republican Party in the wrong direction, uh, in, and in their words, crying about feminism and victimology and uh, racial, not racial, but identity politics, whether it's her complaining that she's being attacked because she's a woman or she's being attacked because she's not from the, as she put it, the hoity-toity class. And here comes uh, the worst of the quotes. It's from Lobosh, the writer for the Weekly Sander. He's appeal of conservatism is supposed to be people taking responsibility for their own actions. But if you close your eyes and listen to Palin and her irate supporters constantly squawk or bellyache or tweet about how, how unfair a ride she gets from evil mustache-twirling elites and rhino saboteurs, she sounds like a professional victimologist, the flip side of any lefty grievance group leader. She's becoming Al Sharpton, Alaska edition. The only difference being she wears naughty librarian glasses instead of a James Brown do. Oh, damn! Man! Calling somebody the Al Sharpton of the right is as heavy an insult as you can possibly give to a Republican. That, and we're not talking about a normal from the sky. We're talking cage match up from 20 feet. Here comes the elbow from four different corners. Boom! Landing on Palin at the same time. Over and out, man. Apparently, the people in power in the Republican Party decided that Sarah Palin is not the girl. Now, this is uh, also in light of Roger Ailes apparently telling her uh, not to do the blood libel video, and she didn't listen, and that pissed off Ailes. And I told you yesterday, that's a bad idea, man. And she's just angered way too many people in that Republican Party. And now that has lead, led to this political article. Then uh, the title is Palin coming Al Sharpton? Question mark. That is, boom, a hatchet in the back. And she's staggering and she's stumbling and she's in massive trouble. So I'll tell you, he, here's something to look out for. If she can get beyond all of this and beat all of these guys, then in some ways you got to take your hat off to her and say, listen, in Bush's immortal words, maybe we're misunderestimating her. Uh, but it looks like it's too much to recover from. And we don't even know if she's going to run, you know. But uh, either way, all this attention, she does get richer. There's no question about that. And, and her supporters will rally around her even more after this, is my guess. So she'll at least make more money out of it. But this is going to leave a mark. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. Earlier this week, we told you about Mike Huckabee's false claim that President Obama grew up in Kenya. As expected, Huckabee trotted out some lame excuse for the obvious lie. Uh, if I'd read from my own text, page 183 of my book, I clearly said he grew up in Indonesia. It was a verbal <laughs> gaffe. I immediately apologized. But that's not enough for the left-wing media no, in no, this no. country, I, Bill. I, and we're know. not giving you jazz here. The problem is there's no mention of Obama's childhood in Indonesia on page 183 of Huckabee's book. In fact, there's no mention of Indonesia anywhere in his book. But if that doesn't solidify his duplicity, this will. And I have said many times publicly that I do think he has a different worldview. And I think it's in part 
molded out of uh, a very different experience. Most of us grew up going to Boy Scout meetings, and uh, you know our communities were filled with Rotary clubs, not madrasas. I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of The Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. Last January, the Supreme Court handed our democracy over to corporations. It said in its Citizens United decision that corporations could spend unlimited amounts of money to try to elect or defeat candidates for office. It said that corporations are amazingly persons. So long as this ruling stands, any hope of having democracy in America will fade. But fortunately, the vast majority of the American public despises this ruling and favors the only remedy available to us, and that's amending the Constitution. In a recent poll by Hart Reed of Democrats, 82% of independents and even 68% of Republicans support the passage of an amendment that would make clear that corporations do not have the same rights as people. There is, of course, a little problem, a classic catch-22, and that is to amend the Constitution, we'll have to get supermajorities from our elected officials, yet most of those officials are beholden to corporations that fund them. The only way to break this catch-22 is to organize from the ground up at city councils, at county boards, at state legislatures. So please get involved in this fundamental effort to democratize the United States. Go to freespeechforpeople.org or move to amend.org and sign a petition and pass the word. We can get this done. There's six states right now that are considering doing away with their primaries altogether. The state of California says that by eliminating the standalone presidential primary, which California always has at the beginning of June, they will save $100 million, I'm sorry, in February, which they're scheduled to have in February, by moving it to June when they have other statewide elections, they will save $100 million. What's interesting about these moves to either abolish or move primaries. Um, here's what we have. Missouri and Alabama have s said that they want to switch theirs to June, uh, combining them with other state properties. Washington and Kansas are considering skipping them altogether and allowing parties to pick candidates through caucuses. And the idea of skipping primaries entirely came up in Massachusetts as well. What this will do, uh, they're saying, it will make it difficult for moderate Republicans and help the extreme Republicans. Well, I don't know who a moderate Republican running for president is yet. I, I I have yet to meet a moderate Republican that has a voice within that party, so it's not surprising that they're muting that voice, as it were, uh, right now. Uh, there is no voice, so it's, it's what's interesting. But it, what's encouraging to Democrats is that these people, these candidates, who have their other pulpits, their other outlets, their media sources, their Fox News, uh, their, their websites, uh, they're going to be able to get through uh, in a bigger way without having to spend their time in smaller states one by one uh, getting onto the uh, onto the political map. Uh, so I think it's encouraging in, in terms of you know who we want to see uh, as Democrats, who we want to see uh, face the president in a, in a general election. It also neuters the possibility of a presidential primary against Barack Obama. There are many Democrats talking about doing that. If you have a state like California making theirs inconsequential, a place where maybe a liberal, uh, a, a more liberal, uh, liberal or more progressive uh, candidate than Obama might challenge him, it, it neuters that possibility. So what I think it does is it puts the, the nomination uh, in Obama's hands as if it weren't already.
One person, one vote. One person, one vote. One of the simplest ideas of democracy. It's supposed to ensure that in general, over time, overall, the government will do stuff that most people want. That the government will enact policies that most people who elect that government will want them to enact. So what do you do if you want government to do stuff that most people really hate? If you want government to do things for which you've got maybe minority support, but which, say, are going to awaken the vast populist sleeping dragon that is the middle class, that is people who work for a living, the traditional base of the Democratic Party, all rising up against you. One thing that might help you get away with passing policies like that is to have a ton of money on your side. Having a few freely spending billionaires on your side can really help limit the damage your policies might cost you at the polls. But you know what would really help? Just directly limiting the damage your unpopular policies are going to cost you at the polls. Limiting it at the polls. Keeping likely Democratic voters out of elections. You know who's a likely Democratic voter? A poor voter. A low-income voter. You know what might make fewer low-income people vote? If you don't allow people to register or to vote unless they show a kind of ID that poor people are less likely to have. You know who else is a likely Democratic voter? Minority voters. You know what might make fewer of them vote? If you force people to show a kind of ID that minorities are less likely to have. You know who else is a likely Democratic voter? College students. You see how this goes. Say that you can't vote or you can't register unless you show ID that college students are less likely to have, and you can thereby reduce the number of college students who are voting. First-time voters are another constituency that's more likely to vote Democratic. If you want to make sure that fewer of them vote, get rid of the ability to register and vote on the same day. First-time voters love that. So stop doing that. Here's another example. The state of Florida made a civil rights advance in the year 2007. Moderate Republican Governor Charlie Crist said if you were convicted of a felony, after you completed your sentence and paid your debt to society, you could have your voting rights restored. More than 150,000 Floridians did so. And for a state struggling with the reintegra reintegration of former prisoners back into society, the challenge of knitting people cast out from society back into society, those 150,000 civil rights success stories were kind of inspiring. And those new voters were considered demographically to be likely to cast their votes for Democrats. And so Florida's new Republican government this week rescinded that civil right. Effective immediately, Governor Rick Scott and his cabinet voted yesterday that you now have to wait five years before you can even ask to have your rights restored. That ought to take care of it. While Wisconsin's famous Senate Democrats were in out-of-state exile to try to stop the Republicans' union-stripping bill there, one of the things Republicans did in their absence was bring the state within about an inch of passing a law that would make it more difficult to vote in Wisconsin than probably in any other state in the nation. Among the provisions of the Wisconsin Republicans' Make It Hard to Vote bill would be that your Wisconsin student ID will no longer be sufficient ID for you to be allowed to vote. See, that's very handy because students tend to vote lopsidedly for Democrats. When Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry ran in 04, he won the state of Wisconsin barely. He won by 11,000 votes total in the whole state. At the University of Wisconsin at Madison, at just that one university, there are 17,000 out-of-state students who, it's safe to say, if they voted, mostly voted Democratic. They voted mostly Democratic then, they would most likely vote Democratic again, as young people and college students tend to do. So Wisconsin Republicans are throwing up a huge procedural hurdle to make it harder for students to vote. The U.S. Supreme Court has affirmed that if you are living somewhere to attend college there, you can vote there. But that doesn't mean Republicans have to make it easy. So no student IDs. In New Hampshire, Republicans are trying the same deal. The kids coming out of the school and, and, and basically doing what I do when I was a kid as a foolish, voting as a liberal. You know, and that, that's, that's what kids do. They don't have life experience and they just, they, they just vote their feelings. Stupid kids. That New Hampshire Republican legislator there has introduced legislation that would only let college students vote in their college towns if they or their parents had previously established permanent residency there. Another New Hampshire bill would end Election Day registration, which would disproportionately impact first-time voters and young voters who, again, are more likely to vote Democratic. Over in Texas, they're dealing with a massive $27 billion budget deficit. In order to deal with that state's disastrous budget emergency, Republican Governor Rick Perry has introduced five bills this session that he insists must be considered on an emergency basis. 
One of them, just so you know, uh, would make the state spend millions of dollars a year to force women to have ultrasounds if they wanted to be allowed by his grace, Rick Perry, to get an abortion. Apparently that's an emergency. Also, government's not small enough to, to, to fit in your uterus in Texas. Uh, but also on Rick Perry's emergency list is a restrictive new voter ID law for Texas, which just like all of these is expected to make it a lot harder for young people, first time voters, poor voters, minority voters, and other traditional democratic constituencies to get registered to vote and to actually cast their vote. The great, this is the best part of it. The great partisan tell in the Texas law is that Republicans did, they did recognize this is gonna cause sort of a hardship. It's gonna make it a little bit hard for some people to register and for people to vote. So they did include two exemptions to this draconian new voter ID law. Two exemptions. The two exemptions are for the elderly, and for people who have concealed carry gun permits. So the only people they have exempted from their new make it harder to vote voter ID bill are the most reliably Republican constituencies in the country other than the Cheney family, gun owners and the very old. In the 2008 presidential election among Texas voters 65 and, and older, the Republican John McCain beat Barack Obama by 34 points. Among gun owners in the entire country, 62% voted for John McCain. These are the two groups for whom voting will be easiest now in the great state of Texas. But for everybody else, it gets harder. You know what this is not about? This is not about the budget. It's also not about voter fraud, because this is the face of voter fraud. This is the face of voter fraud in this country right now, this pitiful specimen. This is Indiana's Secretary of State, the top election official in Indiana. His name is Charlie White. Uh, he's a Republican, although that doesn't really matter. Uh, he has been charged with the pitiful voter fraud crime of lying about still living at his ex-wife's house so he could keep his job on the city council there. And then he voted in her precinct as well because he wanted to keep up the illusion that he still lived there even though he had moved somewhere else. It is pitiful. It would be pitiful even if he was not the Secretary of State. But it's particularly pitiful given that. And that guy, that guy's case, that's sort of what voter fraud looks like in this country. There are a handful of sad sacks every year who register at the wrong address or who forget that they are already registered and fill out a second registration form or who don't know that because they are on probation they're not supposed to vote. Those are the kinds of things that constitute the voter fraud supposed epidemic in this country that you hear about on the Fox News Channel. Is there a voter fraud epidemic in the United States of America of people using fake IDs in order to impersonate somebody else while voting? No, there is not. But for a long time now, the right has been stoking hysteria about it. Fox News even set up a special email hotline before the last election so you, average American, could report what was undoubtedly rampant voter fraud to Fox News. Uh, it was announced on Megyn Kelly's show. The right promotes hysteria um, about mass voter fraud. It's familiar, right? in order to create a sense that there is a crisis, a crisis, a crisis, in order to justify public policy that makes it harder to register and harder to vote. Policies that specifically target voters likely to vote Democratic, to make it harder for those voters specifically to participate in an election. It is supposedly public policy that puts a Republican thumb on the scale for the next election and for every election after, making it more cumbersome and difficult to vote, particularly if you are a likely Democratic voter. They overreached on this big time during the Bush administration. Remember, this is where the whole U.S. attorney scandal came from. Karl Rove giving speeches around the country about the menace of voter fraud and then the White House political operation pressure federal prosecutors to bring charges to find cases to make it seem like there was a voter fraud crisis because the states needed to crack down on that voter fraud and incidentally make it harder for likely Democratic voters to register and to cast their votes. But U.S. attorney scandal or not, get this, right now in 2011, Republicans in 32 states are considering adding more onerous ID requirements to make it harder to register and harder to vote which should bring down the number of Democratic voters nicely in time for the 2012 presidential election. And which should limit any electoral damage these guys might be expecting from pushing for even wildly unpopular redistribution of resources and rights away from America's middle class. Ta-da!
Hey, Jay, this is uh, Matt from Alabama giving you a call. Uh, I was going to leave a comment to uh, give you my two cents about uh, the, using the uh, Abdul-Jamal clips or, or not. Um, I don't know if you've uh, discussed this uh, either on uh, the Facebook page or not, but one of the things I, I like about uh, podcasts, yours and others in particular, is that they're almost uh, faceless messages, uh, which is very different than watching something on television where you uh, associate message with image, with face. And, you know, you mentioned in your, your comments uh, on the last episode that, you know, message trumping, you know, the messenger. And I, I totally agree. And uh, I, I think, you know, people like Abdul Jamal or any of the uh, people, uh, the podcasts that you use, uh, fall under that <clears throat> kind of faceless message that it is more important that uh, what people say than who is saying it. Uh, so I, I do hope you continue to use, you know, Abdul Jamal or any, uh, you know, uh, clips you, you choose uh, because of, of, of that reason. I, I think you can have, you know, great messages from uh, in any source and you don't necessarily associate that message with a uh, messenger uh, on, you know, things like your, your, your uh, podcast. So. Uh, anyways, just thanks. Just wanted to give my uh, my comments on that. And keep up the work. Thanks, Jake. Bye. Hi, Jake. This is Garrett. I'm calling in support of your utilizing the post of Abu Jamal. Not because he's one of your most insightful journalists, although he is. It's mainly because of the call that initiates the pushback. The call that stated that Abu Jamal is a murderer. I found that life is precious. All life. I do not feel that his life is more valuable than that of an officer, and I don't feel that his officer's life is more valuable than a civilian. The court, however, does and will charge one as a capital crime and the other as justifiable. I have every right to expect that the conduct of my pastor, my politician, and my policemen be above reproach because they stand in judgment of us. The initial call was upset that anyone would do anything to his fellow officer, not like to share his sentiment. But he should be upset with his brothers that sully the honor of the badge. Too many civilians are bullied and killed by men in blue, and good officers are not permitted to report it. They will be labeled the rat and treated as though they are the bad officers. The death of Malik Jones after a low-speed chase? Reprehensible. The assault of Abner Louima in a precinct. Disgusting the entire police force of New Orleans that caused the FBI to begin hauling masses of officers away leaving me without words to this day. If the police officer is keeping score, he should be repulsed, but he's directed to those criminals that may never be charged. In fairness, i like to commend the police force in my city. They've come a long way and they are serving their community. Hi, this is Colin from Sacramento, California. I'm 17 years old, and I love listening to your show. Um, I was listening to the Wisconsin Part 1 episode recently, and I heard the David Pakman Show episode about sending 150 soldiers back from Afghanistan and how that would solve the budget deficit. Okay, first of all, I completely understand the point he's trying to make, but, my gosh, that statistic he's using is was widely distributed at the time, and it just, it just, I don't know, I haven't done much research on it, but it kind of smells fishy. It sounds like what they might have done is just taken the number of soldiers in Afghanistan and taken the amount of money we spend on it and just divided one by the other, which is obviously inaccurate because that's not actually the amount of money you'd be saving by taking those soldiers home. So I think what he might mean is if we hadn't sent 150 soldiers to Afghanistan earlier, because when you think about the fuel and stuff, it actually would cost more to bring them home. Although the point is that in California we have, I don't know, something like a $30 billion deficit. If you want to make a point about how small it is, just say something like $150 million or something, you know, which is, I think, their budget deficit is, you know, you know puny compared to $30 billion. So it's really, you know, nothing. Oh, and also, he called the Supreme Court corrupt, which is interesting, because unless they're taking bribes, which I'm not aware of, they have no re-election campaigns. Um, I would agree that they're totally wrong in the decisions they make, but I don't think they're corrupt in any sense of the word. So I just think that, you know, people should maybe watch what they say a little more.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And that last, uh, that last message that I just played uh, from uh, Colin in Sacramento, uh, I, that was an interesting one, I think. I think that's the first time somebody has called in the show and just called out someone, uh, one of the sources for the show. And uh, since I happen to know David Pagman, I thought it would only be appropriate that I drop him a line letting him know, uh, dude, you've been called out. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And he did. Hey, this is David Pakman calling from Northampton, Massachusetts. I wanted to respond to Colin, who uh, left you a voicemail about some of my comments that made it onto your show, from my show, um, about both uh, the cost of the budget deficits in, uh, in Wisconsin and also about the Supreme Court corruption. So, Colin, I'm glad that you're paying attention, but just because something smells fishy to you, I don't know if it really warrants a call to a radio show about or, or Jay's podcast, because you admit you didn't really do the research. Also, your point about it costing money to bring the troops home, um, it would cost money to bring them home whether we bring them home now or later. The point is this, the costs we would stop incurring by no longer having them there. On the topic of the Supreme Court corruption, just because there aren't bribes and just because there aren't elections does not mean the Supreme Court isn't corrupt. And I would really suggest you do a little bit more research, maybe even tune into my show, because we've covered extensively Samuel Alito actually going to Republican fundraiser events and speaking. And one of the basic canons of Supreme Court justices is you should avoid even the appearance of political bias or actual political bias. And speaking at a, uh, a political event like the ones that Alito has been speaking as, to me, indicates that he is not an unbiased observer of the cases that come to him. Also, Clarence Thomas, just to wrap up, we found out that for years, against against tax law, possibly. He had been hiding the fact that his wife was working with a number of conservative groups, many of whom could, may have, and, and may in the future come up, and he would have to decide upon. If your wife's making money from somebody who's in front of you pleading their case, if that's not corruption, Colin, I don't know what is. Thanks. Hope the message is not too long and Jay doesn't make me sound like a racist. So that's that. If uh, if the feud continues, I'll certainly let you know. In the meantime, let me continue to remind you that there is a new video version of the show. This is very exciting. The response has been entirely positive so far. No one's been telling me there's a dumb idea and a waste of time. So that's uh, that's a win in my book. Uh, the easiest way to check this out, I think, is to go to the show notes that are on the blog, bestoftheleft.com. Find whatever episode you're interested in. There's going to be a video box in the show notes. If you click play on that, it'll just play through all the videos that are available for that episode. Uh, and then also the, the acts are labeled and linked uh, above that video box so you can go directly to individual videos. You know, I think this is uh, really exciting stuff. For those of you who want to take advantage of it, I hope that it's going to be a good service uh, going on into the future. And if you have any suggestions, anything you want to, to be made better about it, certainly let me, let me know. But of course, the only way you can tell me that is if you go check it out. So please, please do uh, go check it out. Um, obviously, uh, it takes more work for me to do this than, than it did before, which brings me to thanking profusely uh, not only the members who you know allow me to do this as a full-time job and, and dedicate the time it takes to do this, but also the volunteers, the unsung heroes of the show, who, you know, without them, I would be, you know, so deep in the weeds of just gathering material for the show that, you know, that it would be really, really difficult to ever expand and do anything new and interesting. And, you know, so, so for anyone who's ever volunteered for the show and you probably think like, oh, this is, this is easy and doesn't take that much time. And why does he need someone to do this for him? Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it all adds up so that, uh, hopefully I can be focusing on new and, you know, bigger and better, interesting things to make the show better for everybody. So, um, so huge thanks to all the volunteers of the show and, uh, and all the members. But of course I want to thank a couple in particular, uh, John S signed up for a yearly, uh, leftist membership back on April 4th. 
of, uh, of last year, and Cynthia C. signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on March 23rd of last year and has been sticking with the show uh, for over a year now. So huge thanks to Cynthia and John and all the members and donors who keep the show going. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Spread the word in all the ways you know how. It really does make a big difference, so huge thanks to anyone who does that. Stay tuned into the show between episodes on Facebook and Twitter and get details about the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always linked in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right